Um, good morning. My name's Josh. Uh, I'm really excited today for a couple reasons. The first being that in the eternal battle between whether Dada or Mama is going to be said first, I reigned victorious as of last night. Um, yeah. <laughs> All my dads shower me with love right now, you know what I'm saying? Uh, so yeah, that was a big W going into this morning. Uh, your morning may not, may not be as good because I'm coming in with a lot of heat, you know, on that front. But I'm also excited because we're continuing our Unsung Heroes series. Uh, and I am excited to be sharing my heart on uh, a couple of things that I find, you know, critically important to our lives as believers and as humans. Um, those two concepts, and they may not seem like they are connected, uh, but we'll get there. Uh, those two concepts are church planting and purpose and meaning in life. Now, it's kind of easy, right, for the church planting pastor guy at the well to sit up in front of you and be like, yo, there's a lot of purpose and meaning in church planting. Like, yeah, duh, right, for me to be able to say that. Uh, but I believe that the scriptures make a case that that is truly a, um, a purpose and a calling for all of us. Uh, and let me, let me kind of set the context of that a little bit. Uh, we live in a culture that has a million different ways uh, that we can define success. And you don't really need to go far in order to find a few phrases that try to motivate you or try to tell you about life. Um, if you are from hip-hop culture, uh, specifically Southern, in the, the dirty, dirty Houston area, then you will know what the word trill means. Uh, nobody? Nobody? All right, that's okay. I kind of had this feeling that as I was thinking about that word, I was like, most people in here are going to be like, I have no idea what that means. My man back there knows what it means. All right, cool. We got one. And the rest of everybody's going to be like, I have no idea what that is. My wife went to Jersey Village High School. If you don't know what I'm talking about right now, let me tell you, you missed a grand boat, okay? Because it was fun. It was a good time. Uh, there are more words, though, right? Um, let, let's take a look. I got some things on the internet, so bear with me. Uh, I'm not as cool as I once was. Um, phrases like, keep it 100. Uh, lit. The short-lived on fleek. Um, adulting. Goals. Gucci. Uh, some might even throw in the sacred, uh, but often underappreciated fetch in there. All right? little Mean Girls reference for you. I married a white woman, man. I'm covering my bases today, all right? Um, now, now, these are funny, and they capture what may be in fad or in season. Um, but there's also different phrases that do a little bit more than that. They try to encompass, they try to embody what it means, uh, what life means and the purpose behind it. Phrases like live your truth and no days off. Phrases that actually tap into certain ideas that are at the root of almost every human life. Um, meaning and purpose behind what we do, who we are. Um, something like live your truth would mean like, hey, go find the thing that you really feel makes you satisfied and, and you live that. No Days Off would communicate something like, hey, don't stop, never stop until you achieve the success that you've measured out for yourself. Um, and that's fine, that's good, but I really do believe that the scriptures, um, they highlight what those mean and God defines those for us. Now, in a room this big, when we consider things that bring us meaning and purpose in life, there are probably a few different camps and categories. There are some of you that are actively searching for the thing that you believe is going to give your life meaning and purpose. Uh, there's another camp that believe we found it, right? Um, for a lot of the people in here, it would be Jesus. Uh, for some of the people in here, it would be things more like professional success. Um, 
adulting well, at least, right? Uh, kids, family, a house. Uh, we're actively drinking from that well and saying, man, this is what's going to bring my life meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And then there's another camp in here, a third camp, that would look at everything I've just said and would go, man, I've drank from a lot of wells. And I've tried to find my purpose and meaning in a lot of things. And the only thing I've really been left with is a bit of discouragement and a bit of emptiness. And this is why when we arrive at our place today, our unsung hero today, his name's Epaphras, He's only mentioned three times in the entirety of the New Testament, but I believe his life and his story highlight specifically uh, and unravel what God desires for us to move toward in finding purpose and meaning in our lives. And um, the thought I want us to wrestle with the most today is this thought, that Christ invites us to find both true meaning in him and true purpose in his kingdom through the life and mission of the church. Now, some of you guys are probably like, that's crazy. But uh, I would love to spend the next you know, half hour trying to tease that out and make the case for why I believe this Bible is actually saying that. Now, we're going to go ahead and get started. We're going to dive in because we've got a lot to cover. We're going to be in Colossians 1, okay? Uh, if you do not have a Bible, please raise your hand. Our ushers are going to come by. They'll give you one. If you don't have one at home, take that home. That's our gift to you. In addition, if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can just open that app up, go to events, select the well. There's some digital notes there. If you type in uh, this here hyperlink, right, that's what them are called, uh, this here hyperlink, then uh, it'll take you to those same digital notes, all right? I'm going to go ahead and start working through them. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all, all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you and is indeed in the whole world, in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, where we start today is in the first sentences, the first verses of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Um, now, Colossae, that's the, the original city, uh, Colossae was a decent-sized city in the area of Phrygia, which is in modern-day Turkey. It was also home to a man named Epaphras, our unsung hero today. Um, we don't know a lot about Epaphras outside of the fact that he's from Colossae, but we do know a couple more things about him. Historians, because of this letter, believe that he was the first person ever to have brought the gospel, the message of Jesus, to this city, Colossae, the first person. Now, in here, we kind of take that for granted because at your work on Monday or this past week, you said, what are you going to do this weekend? Someone was like, yeah, I'm going to go to church. And someone else was like, yeah, not me, right? And then that kind of played itself out. But everybody knew what was going on. Everybody knew you were probably going to a Christian church and you were going to talk about Jesus somehow or in some way. But imagine being in a place where not a single soul knows who that is. 
And imagine taking that message of life and hope to that place. That's what Epaphras did. Now, uh, how did he get it? Well, we can't be 100% sure, but historians believe they have traced what, you know, how that really went about. And it was during a two-year period that you can read about in Acts 19, where Paul basically set up shop in Ephesus and preached uh, basically for two straight years to the point that everybody heard about Jesus. My man Paul was sharing the gospel and preaching the gospel so much day in, day out uh, for a two-year period that it seemed like you could not run into anybody that didn't know who Jesus was. Uh, My man was doing work. And it was during this time that a young man named Epaphras would have strolled into Ephesus, and this wouldn't have been uncommon, a young man from a local smaller city visiting the larger metropolitan area in his region, maybe there to, to, to shop or to buy something or even to make some money. Uh, he was walking in, and he probably would have been greeted by familiar sounds and familiar smells, street foods or, you know, vendors in the market selling things. He would have even walked by a few lecture halls that probably would have had people discussing or dialoguing philosophy, which wouldn't have been uncommon during the time. But this day, this day... When Epaphras was walking down that lecture hall, he heard a man preaching a different message. It wasn't just philosophy, it was, it was news. It was, a, it was a heralding of sorts. Somebody was there to tell them something. And it was this man named Paul talking about this Jew, this Jew named Jesus, who in Jerusalem had been crucified for the sins of his people. Not just Jews, Gentiles as well. And when he died for them, he died to forgive their sins. But he didn't just die. He resurrected. And when he resurrected, now he's inviting all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, Jews and non-Jews alike, to become and to be his people, to serve and be his, for him to be their king. And in that, he will give them life and a new purpose and a new heart. Imagine hearing that for the first time after having never heard that in your entire life. I can imagine that it pierced him in the heart. And we don't know if it was in that exact moment or if it was days later after a few conversations with Paul. We don't know, but what we do know is that Epaphras was won over and he started following this Jesus. He eventually began to to devote himself to the studies of this Jesus. Uh, This is pretty early in Paul's ministry, and so when we see him affirming and sending people out, uh, writing letters and saying, hey man, this guy Epaphras, he's the bomb, it would have probably meant that that Epaphras was really close to Paul while he was in Ephesus. So close that Paul eventually sends Epaphras out. But he doesn't send him just anywhere, he sends him back home. He sends him to Colossae. And it's there in Colossae, he doesn't just go back to keep living life as usual though. No, Epaphras goes back with his heart ablaze for this Jesus. He goes back and he knows, man, what I've learned transcends all creeds, all races, all colors, all classes, all languages. It's not limited to a city or a man or a person. This is a message that transcends all of that and is for all men, including my people back in Colossae. And what starts with the seed, the inkling of a young man just wanting to go share the message of Jesus, it births and gives fruit and, 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 and transforms into a community of people glorifying Jesus and exalting his name. And that's the church of Colossae. It had some, some tough parts. It was mainly Gentiles, not a lot of Orthodox Jews or anything like that. So it probably had a few theological issues, and that's where we get the book of Colossians. Paul writing a letter to a church he'd actually never been to before. Um, but he had sent the man 
And he knew and loved the man that had seen and planted that church. And here, providing theological clarity about who Jesus is, about how we live out a life under him and, and in him, and that this is what came out of this one man's effort. These lives changed in this city and this penned book that now is forming our lives thousands of years later. Just because he was faithful. Now, uh, I could probably stop there for some of us. Right? For some of us, we're like, yo, bro, I'm going to go invite someone to church. And you should do that, fam. All right? Like, you need to do I'm not saying no to that. But um, there, there's additionally more groups that, that aren't necessarily um, sold on this Jesus yet in this room. Now, some of you guys even hearing that are like, that sounds good. It sounds like a movement I could get behind, right? This guy that loves you so much, he's willing to die for you, and he wants you to go love on other people and share that message. I'm, I'm game. Right? But then there's that third group that would look at us and be like, oh, man, what does that have to do with me, though? Right? I'm glad for this guy, Epaphras. Right? Epaphras caught the wave of some new religious movement, and he went out, and he, it gave him purpose and stuff. And, but it's one of many things that gives people purpose. And, man, what if that one's just not mine? And maybe you're right. Maybe Christianity is just a religious movement, uh, a message of hope in a region of the Middle East that was actually feeling a lot of oppression and a lot of hurt and a lot of pain and a lot of anger, and it took and it caught like wildfire. Man, some of that is actually really true. But I honestly believe that this text and this book are making a far greater claim than that regarding what purpose and meaning are in the life of not just Christians, but of every single human being on the face of the planet. Now, I want to take some time to unravel that because that's kind of a lofty claim to not provide any kind of backup for. <laughs> uh, and so as we dive back into the text, I, I want us to go to um, 1.5. And in 1.5, Colossians 1.5, I want us to take a look at the reason why these people were even doing any of this stuff in the first place. Paul says, uh, <coughs> since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. But why does he say they're doing it? Because of the, oh, y'all, oh, come on, y'all. Was... Now, I'm going to give you grace, all right, because we're at church or whatever. If it was another day, I'd be like, come on, fam. But uh, verse 5, because of the, okay, laid up for you in heaven. Right? So you see what's happening there? Paul understands that there's a leveraging taking place. These people in Colossae are living in a way where eternity is so much at the forefront of their mind that they are actively changing their life based on that, right? Like, first off, before we move any further, how awesome is that? Like, how awesome of a way to live that you would wake up each day thinking so much at the forefront of your mind about what was going to produce fruit and what was going to bless your life in eternity that you changed how you lived that day. Like, man... That's challenging. It's challenging for me. It's challenging for all of us. It's challenging for everybody. But, but there's something that I still kind of want to tease out. I think, that, I think that, that there's something more to look at here because of the hope they had laid up for them in heaven. And I think the question then becomes, right, what in the world is heaven? Because if there's 250 or whatever people in here, I promise you there's probably like 140 different variations of heaven right now. And they all can't be true. <coughs> By the way, I have allergies, so if it sounds like I'm like kind of have like a left collapsing lung, it's not true. I'm just, it's the trees. Um, 
For some of us, right, I think a lot of the variations are kind of based in this, right? There's this idea that heaven is this place where our soul or our spirit or something that's not our body goes after we die. And when we get there, we can do all the things we always wanted to do. We don't have to do any of the things that we never wanted to do, all right? Uh, Jesus is there, but he's there kind of the way like a president or a king is here. Like we know he's there, but we just don't see him all the time. But we, like, we dapped him up and gave him a hug when we got there. We are like, appreciate you letting me in, right? Like, and then we... We kind of know that there's like this church service going on somewhere in the corner where you can go and like praise Jesus if you want to, but then you can also come back out and kind of lay around. And when you get back out, all the streets in the robes are, are white, and so is Jesus if you believe the pictures, right? But, um, but I, would, uh, I, would contend that, I would contend that that type of existence, that type of existence is never found anywhere in this book. There was never a time where God intended his creation to just kind of stand around and be idle. Even in resting in the garden, there's this concept of resting. Even resting is meant to draw you back to God in order to rest in him, be refueled by him, in order to go back out and keep working. Right? So that, that existence is never really here. And in order for us to really understand what Paul's getting at, we have to go back and gain an understanding of what creation was intended to be, because that, in fact, is what God is restoring us to. That's heaven. But if we don't know what took place in the beginning, we won't know what takes place at the end. So to do that, I want to turn to Genesis 1. We're going to be in 26 and 28. You don't have to turn there. We're going to get it up here. But starting in 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and every, over every creeping thing that creeps on. <laughs> that always ties me up, man, like creeper's going to creep kind of thing, you know. <laughs> um, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the sea and have over, and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, here in Genesis 1, no matter what your theology is behind how it got there, the authors want us to be drawn to a certain idea. And the certain idea is that here in the garden, man, we get a glimpse into what creation is meant to be, right? There's God's people, Adam and Eve, living in God's perfect place, the garden, and they're under God's perfect rule with him as God and them in perfect relationship and in perfect obedience. Perfect obedience to God, meaning he just looks at them and goes, hey, man, do this. And their response is, I trust that you're good, and therefore I know that that's good, right? That's his rule, just his word. And it's, it's beautiful. And in that, notice that there is nothing that says they're just idle. Nothing that says they're just there or kind of lounging around or kind of just hanging out. In fact, the opposite. Genesis 2.15 says that, man, there, is, there was no shrub and no tree because there was no man to work the garden. And here in 126.28, they're given a purpose and a role. 
Adam and Eve are said to have the image of God, to be made in the image of God. That's not to say that they look like God, but instead that they were given authority that, re, that resembled or reflected God's authority so that they could go out into creation and begin to cultivate a world where God's goodness was reflected into that world where they were going to rule over their families and over creation and over businesses and over culture in a way that was going to reflect God's goodness. And I know that's hard for us to fathom because the only thing we know is a corrupted man leading corrupted people on earth right now. But this isn't man's rule. This is God's rule through his image-bearing creatures on earth obeying his very word and leading this creation into a place of bliss and blessedness. That's the stage set. It's, a it's not just a beautiful story. It's a perfect story. It's perfect. Or at least it would have been. We all kind of, I think most of us probably know the story that kind of happens after this. Uh, that the serpent, the evil one, tempts Adam, uh, tempts Eve. And the thing he goes after initially is he says, hey, uh, that whole thing about God ruling over you, really just with his word. He says, don't eat of this, you don't. He says, eat of that, you do. He says, go make culture uh, and, and fill the earth with basically my goodness as my image bears and you do it. Um, I want to attack that and just say, hey, are you sure about that? Did he really say this? And the temptation in the heart of man, of humanity, is not just I'm going to go rebel and become a Satan worshiper. Uh, no, the, the action is to say, no, you know what? Maybe he didn't. And in fact, maybe I can weigh out what I think is best for me instead of God. And in an instant, the temptation of man in the garden that breaks and eliminates and crushes the unity, that kind of takes a, just a can of red paint and throws it into the masterpiece, is this moment where humanity says, you know what? I think I might be able to decipher my best will and my best life for myself. Uh, Graham Goldsworthy, he's a noted and very famous theologian in Australia. He's famous to geeks and nerds. He's not famous to everybody, so don't worry if you don't know. Um, he said it like this, instead of knowing good and evil by rejecting evil and remaining good, they chose rather to reject good and become evil. The most important effect of this is that God is no longer regarded as the self-evident creator and Lord. His word is no longer accepted as self-evident truth, but is reduced to the status of the word of the creature. Both God, God and his word are seen as lesser authorities that must constantly be tested by higher authorities. They, Adam and Eve, rebel against God, not by consciously making Satan their new final authority, but by taking that function to themselves. The truth of any proposition would from this point onward be tested by what was in humans themselves. This, this man is writing about the creation story at the very beginning of the Bible. And you could basically take the exact thing he said, put it in any world culture right now, and be like, that's true. Think about that. That the root of what the Bible says, man's flaw and man's failure has been since the very beginning is the same one we see run rampant through humanity now. And it's in this moment where all this unity breaks up, um, where man, who's supposed to be the image-bearing representative of God in creation, goes from 
uh, son to enemy, opposing God's kingdom. Um, God's people are no longer his people. They're now his enemies. God's place is empty because he has to banish Adam and Eve out of the garden. And God's rule no longer has authority over the hearts of mankind. Uh, Yet in the midst of all this, God doesn't leave it like that. He gives this little glimmer of hope in the midst of it. In, uh, in Genesis 3.15, he says, uh, can we get 3.15 up there? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is called uh, theologically the proto-evangelium, uh, which literally just means the first gospel. The first proclamation of good news that there is one promised who was going to take everything that was corrupted, everything that the serpent stole and that humanity lost, and he was going to restore it. And everything that was flipped upside down, he was going to make right. And the same serpent that came in and corrupted humanity the first time, he was going to crush the head of that evil one. And he would establish this kingdom forever and ever and ever. That little glimmer of hope moves forward in the lives of so many people in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. Uh, and we see God kind of create a pattern out of this. We see him kind of make a pattern. Um, you see in creation, God's people with Adam and Eve, the place is garden, God's rules in his word. But then he keeps establishing these representations of his kingdom. And it's not the promised one, but these representations do a job still. They begin to reveal bits and pieces of this promised one. They begin to show bits and pieces of who he is and what he does and what he'll be like and what he's going to do. But the problem is is that each one of these representations, they also fail. They fall, Abraham and his family, and they fail test. The brothers are basically selling each other into slavery and all this crazy business, right? Israel as an entire country is like, yo, we don't want God as a king. Give us like actual kings, right? And their actual kings show a lot of great, great characteristics that, that God is saying, hey, this is going to be like Jesus, but, but they keep failing too. All because no matter what the representation is, we're all, right, bound and enslaved to this sin that causes each one, each human to continuously draw away from God. If any of you have listened to uh, the hymn, Come Thou Fount, there's the final verse that says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Right? That, that action at work in all of us, right? And as sin continues to run rampant through each one of these representations of God's kingdom, uh, they continuously fall away and away and away from God. Israel being this final one that that is sent into exile. That means that they were literally taken captive. They were taken away uh, by uh, different countries. They were passed around like a possession. And in that time, prophets come and people, you can read in the Old Testament, people say, hey, I'm, I'm hearing from God and he's calling us to repent. And some people do and some people don't. But it's, it's there that the disobedience continues to mount and gradually and gradually and gradually that voice of the Lord begins to, to, to kind of turn into a whisper, and then finally into a silence. And now the word of the Lord is not present. There's no active interaction between God and his people from what humanity can see. And they're placed under a harsh Roman government 
that demands uh, more than they can probably give at the time. And there's silence. And it's in the midst of this silence that one man arises. There's in the midst of this silence, in this fear, that the kingdom of God is no more, and that it has fainted into the background. This one man appears, and he's from a small village. He's not very known. But what they don't know about him is that his T's are crossed and his I's are dotted regarding where he comes from. You see, his, his lineage has all the, the past kings of old, the ones that were important at least. Uh, and, and, and he meets every standard that this promised one would, would, would need to meet. And he appears on the scene and he bursts into the scene saying something that would have caused waves in the midst of that culture. And it causes waves today. Jesus busts onto the scene in Mark 1, and he says this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then this Jesus starts doing crazy things. He starts doing crazy things. He, he gets baptized. And when he gets baptized, like, it's not like when anyone else gets baptized. Like, the heavens open up and this dove comes down and, like, God himself is like, this is my son and I'm pleased in him. And see, God, I mean, Jesus begins to embody that he's God's people. God is pleased in him. He has sent his people into the earth in Jesus. And so he goes into the wilderness and goes into certain, certain points, and he takes on these tests that every representative kingdom in the past had taken on, except for he doesn't fail them. He crushes them. He kills it. He goes into the wilderness and where Adam and Eve failed to trust God. He looks at the enemy and goes, man, I will not worship anything but my father. He establishes, man, I, I won't be, I won't be uh, capsized and, and deceived out of my obedience to my father. He's my Lord and my God. And automatically, he begins to crush the test that others failed. He says, yo, I'm the actual place of God, right? Like he starts saying crazy things regarding the, where God dwells. He's like, yo, I'm in God and God's in me. And, and this is the temple. And, and you can break this temple down, but I will build this temple up in three days. And then he goes on to to kind of establish and, and show us, give us insight into what the rule of God's kingdom would look like on earth when he goes to every blind person that he sees and he's like, yo, you can see. And every lame person he sees is like, hey, get up and walk. Demon-possessed, you're liberated. And all of you, that sin, right, that keeps you bound and enslaved and away from me, you're healed. You're forgiven from it. This is crazy talk. But it had happened. This promised one, this snakehead crusher, this king redeemer, he was finally here. It was God's people and God's place and God's rule. All in one person, this Jesus. And so you could have imagined what it would have been like for his disciples and those that followed him when they saw him get arrested and beaten like a common criminal. You could imagine what all that hope did 
as it fizzled away. And then to look at the man that you thought was going to restore your people and restore your life and fix everything and make it all right to be hanging lifeless, nailed to a tree. Um, but what the disciples did not understand was that, was that Christ wasn't really coming for any of that the way they perceived it. He wasn't just seeking to place a person in power or to heal a couple. He was coming with a far greater agenda to look at creation and to remake it, to renew it. This time in a different way. You see, because the things that bogged down and enslaved the creation before, he was going to conquer those things. When he took our sin on his body, on the cross, and in his person, and then he died and killed them and looked at us and went, you're forgiven, what he did not or what the disciples didn't understand was that when he resurrected, it was going to be to show that the very things that had enslaved his people and his creation were now defeated in the victory of Jesus. Man would no longer be corrupted, held down. Um, the, the evil within man itself would be defeated and slain and be conquered by an indwelling spirit, the Holy Spirit, to come in and make us alive and rule our hearts in a way that moved us toward Jesus. That's why Jesus in, in John says that the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus in our hearts. He shows the rule of God in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He shows the, the place of God as now he's saying that Jesus dwells in you and in me, the church, the, the true temple of God. And he says, yo, and, 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 and this is the people of God chosen, forgiven, redeemed, reconciled to me. And in one fatal swoop, kind of like before the disciples' eyes, when they don't even recognize it, the Lord establishes his kingdom anew within the body of the church, you and I. <laughs> right? It was like the good one too, like, oh, gotcha, right? Like, And in his final moments before he ascends into heaven, he does something so peculiar. Uh, in Matthew 28, all you guys know it. There may some of you guys know it. Sorry to me to be assuming on you like that. Uh, 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Can we put that, that table up, Cloud? Now let's just take a second, uh, because this had me crying for a little bit, but you, may have, you guys may not be there, but nonetheless, um, when Jesus took that moment to look at his disciples and go, hey, go make disciples, it wasn't just a command it was the recommissioning of a new creation with an ancient purpose and job. In the beginning, man was made so that he could go out bearing the image of God and shaping culture in a way that glorified and made much of Jesus to display his goodness in their life, in their actions, in the way they thought, spoke, loved one another, and then he wanted them to go out and to do that and to cultivate all of creation in that same way. And here... 
this recommissioning takes place where Jesus now with his new kingdom, with his new creation, the church, looks and goes, hey, go to all nations and be fruitful, make disciples, right, and, and subdue and, and take dominion. But, but this looks like teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And it's here where we now, 2,000 years later, find what we're supposed to do. That this ancient purpose, this ancient job, has been something that has trickled down through the hearts of man, uh, humanity, since that fateful day in the garden, but one that Christ extends a restoration of. He invites us to be restored to. It's why we make governments. It's why we, we make businesses. It's why we do all these things. It's why we start revolutions to overthrow dictators and why we stage coups. Because all of us know that there's something that should give us life, and then all of us know that there is a type of rule and a type of government that should draw us closer to that thing. Even in the Declaration of Independence, it says, hey, uh, every person is, is granted, right, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yet when we have humanity taken the definition of happiness onto ourselves, we don't know where to go. And Christ and, and all that really, really deep down inside of our heart is just an echo of what's really there. The right desire, but the wrong place to find it. Because what we what we long for is to be reunited and reconciled with our God, to intimately know him, and to be surrounded by the rule of God in our heart that takes us day by day and pushes us toward him, toward life. Um, Tim Keller, awesome pastor, theologian in New York, he writes regarding the church uh, in God's kingdom and creation in this way. Uh, what is the relationship of the church to the kingdom of God? Uh, on the one hand, the church is a pilot plant of the kingdom of God. It's not simply a collection of individuals who are forgiven. It is a royal nation. In other words, a counterculture. The church is to be a new society in which the world can see what family dynamics, business practices, race relations, and all of life can be under the kingship of Jesus Christ. God is out to heal all the effects of sin, psychological, social, and physical. On the other hand, the church is to be the agent or an agent of the kingdom. It is not only to model the healing of God's rule, but it is also to spread it. To spread the kingdom is more than simply winning people to Christ. It is also working for the healing of persons, families, relationships, and nations. It is doing deeds of mercy and seeking justice. It's ordering lives and relationships and institutions and communities according to God's authority to bring the blessedness of the kingdom. <coughs> Excuse me. A family, this is why we do what we do. This is why the well does what it does. This is why Epaphras does what it does. To see that kingdom established in your heart and in ours. It's why um, we fight and press to see you in community, to see you growing into Christ's likeness in your conduct, in your love, in your affections, in your heart. It's why we even see the places where we fail, where we're not doing well, 
Places like serving where we have talked as staff team and said, man, we have to do this better. Why? Because this is not just a you got that, we got this, we all got something different. This is the kingdom of God establishing itself until he comes back and finishes and makes everything new. This is what our job is. It's what our purpose is. And I I have this burden on my heart for you as our church and as our people because I know that in this day and age, with a million different things pulling at you, you're burdened too. Uh, As I make, you know, my communal rounds, like my pastoral communal rounds kind of thing, um, I often hear people say things like, man, I'm just just not satisfied in my work. You know, my marriage just doesn't seem to have what it used to. I'm struggling because I feel cooped up in the house with these kids and I don't really, I don't really feel like it brings me life. And I thought if I, would able, if I was able to just attain this specific thing, it would make life so much better, but it just, it's not. I'm burdened because this purpose that God has called and invited us to, this purpose of going out and expanding his kingdom, showing and displaying his love and affection to the world is not one that you have to leave your family to pursue. It's not one that you have to leave your job to pursue. It's not one that you have to stop going to school and switch over to do. It's not one that, you know, you have to go find, or you have to raise your kids better or get out of the house more to do it. No, 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 no. This purpose and this meaning is the reason you have a family. This purpose and this meaning is the reason you have a job. It's the reason you go to school. It's the reason we strive at work. It's the action of knowing that every moment we have, every breath, every word, every action, no matter where it is, is the aim to please God and to rest in his pleasure that has been afforded to us by Christ and nothing else. You're his kingdom. And you can rest easy that you are in his hands. You're his kingdom on earth here. And you don't have to be burdened in the purpose of work, in the purpose of at home, in the purpose of anything, other than knowing that as you do all of those things, you do it to the best of your abilities in order to model Christ and his life and his goodness in your family, in your job, in your school, wherever it is, in order for others to see that every moment you choose this God, you choose this Jesus over anything else is a testimony to everyone around you that he's better and that he's greater. So, uh, where do we end this? I think we, we kind of end it there. Epaphras planted that church because the forefront of his mind was an eternal work that was taking place in him for his city. The Colossians, they lived out a life of faith and loving others because they thought through the eternal weight and the eternal job they had right there in that city. And for you today, Christian, man, if you're here at the well, right, like, I I think a good question to think through this week would be like, hey, man, how... How am I partnering to see this kingdom of God advance? What am I doing to see it moved forward? Um, Man, I mean, really, 
Like, I think this is, I, I feel no shame in what I'm about to say because I believe in what we just preached about. Are you called to go on a church plant that the well is going to send out? Are you called to plant a church yourself? Are you called to be a missionary in another country? Maybe you're called right here to serve the well, and that's great. But how are you partnering to see other people go? How can you get involved in serving the city and in seeing it grow and, and seeing it uh, impact the lives of others on behalf of Jesus working in your life? How can you do that? How can we do that? And then the uh, final thing I'll say is just to my, my brothers and friends in here that don't know uh, this Jesus. And everything I've said right now uh, is good and it's cool. Um, man, I just want to invite you to know that there's grace here. What we go out and we do as Christians is not something built on our merit. We go out and we're able to do it because we know that we're building on a foundation of grace and mercy. That where we fail, he will come through. That he will exalt his name in what we do well, and he will exalt his name in the grace that he shows us when we do poorly. That's a liberation that nothing else gives, friend. Nothing else gives. And there's only one that provides it, and it's that Jesus. Um, I, kind of going back to Keller, fish, you know, fishes don't find freedom on dry land. Um, they find freedom in water. They find freedom in what they were created for. And there's nothing, because of what Jesus has done on your behalf, there's nothing that keeps you from that. Nothing more than following him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. Um, thank you for your life lived in a way that exalts God and establishes your kingdom on earth. Thank you for um, your death that freed us from sin, uh, that forgave us, that atoned for our mistakes. And Lord, thank you for your resurrection that declares you are victorious over everything that has enslaved and brought bondage to your creation. Um, Lord, I, I ask you um, that in this place today, we would wrestle with certain questions, wrestle with what it means to have purpose and meaning, what it means to be motivated by eternity, what it means to be involved and participate in the advancement of your kingdom. I ask that we would wrestle with those questions. Um, and in that, I am sure that you, as our good king and as our good God, will provide. Um, we love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.